I'll sing thy power to save. That really has been the theme uh, of the last several weeks in chapter nine of Hebrews, the, the particular power of the sacrifice of Christ in comparison to the sacrifices of the old covenant. What a savior we have. If you would turn again to Hebrews chapter nine as we continue to marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust for you, it's, it's true as it is for me, that there are certain times in our lives as Christians in which the goodness of God comes crashing in all around us in a way that's overwhelming. Of course, we're always to live with a sense of an enduring gratitude towards the Lord. He's always good to us, we know that. But undoubtedly, there are particular moments in our lives when the goodness of God has been shown to us in, in a way that's clearer than perhaps at other times. For me personally, outside of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one particular occasion in my life that's burned in my memory that I will never forget in which God's goodness came crashing into view for me in a way that was simply overwhelming. If you have known me for a long time, you may know that when I was a little boy, even from that time, I've been something of an old soul. I've literally wanted to be married since preschool. <laughs> and by the time I met my wife and, and had the privilege of finally marrying her, the gap between five years old and 22 years old felt like an eternity. I had prayed and prayed and waited and waited for the day that God would bring the woman that I was to marry and I would see her walking down the aisle to me. And so when that day finally came and it was time and the wedding began and it, it, it was a time in which emotions were blocked up inside of me to a level that maybe I didn't even realize was there. And we had decided as part of our wedding ceremony to have a prayer time after the vows and just before the pronouncement, uh, we would come together and, and Neil and our groomsmen and bridesmaids, our closest friends and family would come around us and pray as my childhood music director sang in the background. And as we knelt there and began to pray, the, it was with a great sense of clarity, the goodness of God overwhelmed me. That God had been so good to me in that moment to give me such a gift the gift of marriage certainly, but the gift of marriage particularly to such a woman as this. And, and it, it just washed over me in a way that I just completely lost it right there in front of everybody on the stage, uh, ugly, body shaking, crying, just you wiping snot from my face. Those are, the, those are the pictures that we have of our wedding. It's me, <laughs> ugly crying. I wasn't really a crier till that moment, but it's kind of stuck with me since. But really it was the clear recognition that God has been good to me in a way that's palatable in this moment that I just couldn't get over. And I'm convinced that the author of Hebrews is desperately determined for us to be washed away with a tidal wave of gratitude for our savior in the book of Hebrews. He intends for us to marvel again and again at the precious gift of Jesus Christ. Obviously the gift of Christian marriage is a great gift in this temporal life, but it has nothing on the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ that God has given to us. And I believe it's one of the reasons that the author of Hebrews keeps coming back saying over and over again, look again to Christ, Christian. And having looked, look again and again and again. See your savior and the gift that you have in his substitutionary sacrifice. And this morning, as we look at that sacrifice and the unique elements of what he's done for us yet again, I pray that that tidal wave of gratitude grows and grows and grows and washes us away as we express that gratitude to him. Obviously, the theme of this letter has been from the beginning, the superiority of Christ. We see it on every line, every page. We're in this, uh, this section from chapter eight through the middle of chapter 10, finishing ver uh, chapter nine this week. Jesus is superior covenant and sacrifice. Specifically, we'll be looking at the sacrificial portion of that today. We've been unpacking this one main idea that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. 
Let me just remind you very quickly of how chapter nine has led us to this point. If you haven't been with us, chapter nine broke down into five different segments. Segment one described the earthly tabernacle for us in verses one to five. Segment two in verses six to 10 looked at the message of the earthly tabernacle. We learned that that message simply was that the, the old covenant tabernacle was a, like a blinking light telling us that a better way is needed to God, that we need another way in which all of God's people can gain eternal access to God. And because of that, we need a better sacrifice. That led us in segment number three to the superiority of Christ's redemption. In verses 11 to 14, we've seen that in the blood of Christ, we have an eternal redemption, a once for all redemption. And that again will be a key theme this morning as we close out chapter nine. Then we came to segment four, the mediator of the new covenant, verses 15 to 22 that we closed out last week. And I want us to read these verses again, just to get the context back into our minds. So we'll be in Hebrews nine, picking up in verse 15. The author writes, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it's never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now we saw the implication in verse 15 that Christ's mediation secures our inheritance. Because of what he's done, we can rest assured that we will have this salvation inheritance forever. And then last week we saw the illustration, simply that human wills are activated by death. Upon the death of Christ, we were then able to receive the benefits of what Christ had done for us in the same way that a person receives the benefits of a will once the person who made it passes away. And then finally, the argumentation, the old covenant was inaugurated by death. This is verses 18 to 22. Remember Leviticus 17, 11, a key verse here for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. We said the, the reason the blood, that sacrificial blood was so important is because it represented the substitutionary life of the animal and of course in a greater way of the life of Christ. And so we looked at that blood and the idea of death and the first covenant could not have been inaugurated without death, without blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, obviously, the point that the author is making really is not about the old covenant as much as it is the new covenant. He's pointing us again to something about the superiority of Christ. And that brings us then to our passage today at the end of chapter nine. So let's read chapter nine, beginning in verse 23 down through 28. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. 
But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This is a wonderful passage. So much rich truth here. Many things that we'll study are are things that we've seen before, either hinted at or clearly explained. And then there'll be some new things that are brought in as well. As the author begins to introduce to us here in segment number five, the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. The superiority of Christ's sacrifice, verses 23 to 28. Notice he begins here in verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Now this is a, this is a tie-in statement to where we left off last week. He just described that in the old covenant, animal blood was used to cleanse the people and the objects used in worship under the old covenant. And what he's saying here is that That was right, that was necessary under that covenant for those things to be cleansed in that way. It was, after all, simply a copy, a shadow of the heavenly. And so these sacrifices, these temporal sacrifices were what God prescribed for that particular tabernacle. But the argument here now really is how that old covenant points to the new. And that's what we're getting to here. At the end of that statement, he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So it was necessary, it was right, we might say, for the old covenant to be cleansed and inaugurated with those sacrifices, but those sacrifices would never do for the heavenly tabernacle and the new covenant to be inaugurated through Christ. Instead, the heavenly things needed better sacrifices. Notice specifically how he refers to these heavenly things. He says, but the heavenly things themselves. This is an emphatic way to show the difference between the temporal and the eternal. He's saying, look, those earthly things, that copy, that shadow, that was fine for those things to be covered with animal blood, but the heavenly things themselves, that is the real things, the things that were being pointed to, these had to have a better sacrifice. Essentially the point is this, the inauguration of the new covenant also had to be inaugurated with blood. There had to be a sacrifice for the bringing in of the new covenant just as there was the old. We need to be careful here not to misunderstand because he says this in a way that has led some to think that he's suggesting that the heavenly tabernacle actually needed to be cleansed, that there was something about that tabernacle that was deficient and so sacrifices had to be made to cleanse that heavenly tabernacle. That's really not the point at all. The point is to compare and contrast. The old was inaugurated through blood, the new was inaugurated through blood, but it had to be with better blood, a better sacrifice. And in both both cases, in the old covenant and the new, the issue there was how for the people to be able to approach God. The people were defiled, the people needed cleansing. That's why the people were sprinkled with the blood under the old covenant, and the people have to be covered with the blood of Christ under the new covenant. So if anything's defiled here, it's the people who are now trying to enter the covenant. It's you and me. And what we need for this covenant to be enacted and to have the right to be a part of it is blood. Specifically, blood that's better than all the blood that was spilled under the old covenant. Now this is a a key statement. This is what the author does often. He'll make a big, bold statement and then prove it. We've seen this pattern over and over again. It's exactly what he's gonna do here. The statement is, this new covenant needs better sacrifices, and now he says, let me prove to you why Christ is that better sacrifice that was needed for this covenant. And so what he's gonna give us are three proofs. Three proofs regarding the sacrifice of Christ. Three proofs that show us 
just how superior it really is. Now, some of these proofs, as I mentioned, are not altogether new. They are a reiteration of things that he's already said. But I want you to think of this as sort of a, a, a great crescendo of proof. He's pulling some, some from the old and some from the new, and he's gonna bring them all together into one mixture as a great crescendo to show us with sort of a final stamp of authority that the sacrifice of Christ truly is superior in every way. But as we've said before, it's important to keep in mind, this is not just to fill up our brains with new theological truth. This is not just for us to be able to sit back and explain the intricacies of the atonement of Christ. These theological truths are meant to grip us and propel us into action. These are big truths, they're grand truths. In some ways, they're the basic truths you came to know when you came to know Christ. In other ways, they're the, the grand truths that are studied in seminaries and in libraries across the world as scholars try to stretch their brains to understand these things. And yet, it is not simply an academic exercise. So don't allow yourself to sit comfortably in your chair and just take in the theological truths as wonderful as they are, but as each one of these proofs is given to you by our author, I want you to remember this. If you're in Christ, this superior sacrifice was made for you. This is your savior. He did this to cover your sins and he means for it to affect everything about you and everything about your day down to the most practical things you can imagine. And so it is that we have to keep the practical in mind as we look at the theological and we'll seek to do that along the way. Now let's look at this first proof of just how superior Christ's sacrifice is. Proof number one, we'll call the location of his present ministry the location of his present ministry. And the author's gonna follow a nice organized pattern here as he gives us this information. Each one of these three proofs follows the exact same formula. He's gonna give us a negative statement and then follow that with a positive statement. Negative, then the positive. In this case, he's gonna tell us something that's not true about Christ's sacrifice, to lead into something that is true about Christ's sacrifice. So look at the negative part of proof number one to start. This is verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. This is the negative, this is what he didn't do. And again, he's told us this before. In fact, he told us before that Christ in the earthly sense wasn't even qualified to enter that old covenant tabernacle because he wasn't from the line of Levi and he wasn't specifically from the line of Aaron. And so we've already been over this. He did not enter, nor was it his plan to enter this earthly tabernacle, this copy, this shadow to carry out his ministry. Instead, look to the positive. Here's the rest of the statement but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't enter into that tabernacle, he entered into heaven itself. This is the true tabernacle, the greater tabernacle. And the idea is because Christ entered heaven itself, it must mean that the sacrifice that was required that he gave was greater than all the sacrifices given under the old covenant because those sacrifices never brought them anywhere close to heaven to do their ministry in the actual heavens. That required a better sacrifice and Christ gave it. Now notice the word appear. Now to appear in the presence of God, three different times. In fact, in each one of these proofs, he's going to use some version of this idea of appearing. He may use the word manifest or appear or appeared, but this appearance of Christ is important. And each one of these is going to magnify a different part of Christ's ministry. Here we have him appearing in the present tense. This is his present ministry for us where he's been ascended to the right hand of the Father. Then he's gonna mention his appearing in the past, his past substitution for us. 
And then he's going to look to the future and his future appearing when he returns for us. And so we have the totality of Christ's ministry here in these three proofs. But notice here in this first proof, we, we see a couple of things. One, we see the place where his ministry happens currently, and we see on whose behalf this ministry happens. Now to appear, here's the place, in the presence of God. This is the real, true presence of God, the fullness of God's glory is on display there and Christ's glory with his, and he ministers there. This is exactly what he told us he was going to do. This is John 16, verse five. On the night before his uh, crucifixion, he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? This was his plan, to go to the Father. After his resurrection, he ascends, of course, to the heavens to minister there on our behalf in the presence of the Father. And here we see that it is most certainly on our behalf because he says, now to appear in the presence of God for us, for us. Those two little words should jump off the page and get a hold of you. He ministers there in the presence of God, Christian, for us, on our behalf, for our benefit. We've already looked some in the past in Hebrews at the, the, the work of Christ presently before the Father, but let me just remind you, we learn that Christ intercedes for us. That is, he prays for us. On the regular, daily, he's praying to the Father for us. There he stands as a guarantee for us that at the very moment of our last breath, we will be with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He stands as a guarantee that his sacrifice has been accepted. John 17, 24 reminds us that he desires for us to go and to be with him. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you've given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. So the present ministry of Christ, what he's doing for us right now in the heavenly tabernacle is he's standing there as our, our high priest interceding for us and guaranteeing that he will one day bring us to be there with him. Now, underlying all of these verses is this continued imagery of the day of atonement. Remember, we've talked several times about the Day of Atonement, how the, the high priest would enter in on that day on behalf of the people into the Holy of Holies. The idea here is that Christ has entered into the true Holy of Holies behind the veil, if you will, of heaven, and he's ministering there for us, but only by the blood of himself, a better blood. It had to be earned by a superior sacrifice. Now, as we take that theology and we bring it over to the practical aspects of our life, let me ask you, how does it affect you right now to know that Jesus Christ currently intercedes for you in the very presence of God the Father? How does it affect you to think of the fact that his ministry on our behalf is happening right now? Right now, he prays for us. How does it affect you to know that he stands there as a guarantee of your inheritance, that it will one day be yours? How does it affect you to know that he prays for your sanctification? He prays for your preservation. He prays that you will stand firm in the faith in the midst of the trials and temptations of life. Christian, how does that affect you? This is meant to reach out and grab us, to, to tell us keep running the race, keep trusting. Keep praising God, keep proclaiming God, keep serving God. This superior sacrifice of Christ has earned for him a present ministry in the very presence of God and he carries it out day in and, and day out for us. Great truths and yet practical truths all at the same time. But there's a second proof here and the, the second proof is what we'll call the, the efficacy of his past substitution. 
the efficacy of his past substitution. That is to say, it was absolutely effective. It accomplished its aim completely and perfectly. Again, we follow the same pattern. He's gonna give us a negative description that's followed then by a positive description. Looking at verse 25, he says, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. That word nor ties right into our argument. He began with a negative argument and now he's coming back to another negative argument. He said, for Christ did not enter. That's where we started. Now he adds to that, nor was it that. And the negative side of the argument points our attention specifically to this issue of efficacy or effectiveness. Christ's sacrifice was not one that would be repeated over and over again. And the comparison, again, is with the high priest walking into that holy place, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement. That was a yearly ceremony. It happened every year, uh, like clockwork, on the calendar of the people of Israel. And the fact that it was continual, now here's the point he's making. He's gonna really get to this in chapter 10. But here's the argument he's making. The fact that those sacrifices were continual, that they happened annually, says something about how effective they were or weren't. If they were so effective, why did they have to keep happening every year? And he says, not so with the sacrifice of Christ. But we'll get to that here in just a moment. But the general principle is that the effectiveness of a sacrifice can be measured by how frequently it has to be offered. So when we measure the sacrifice of Christ against the, the sacrifices under the old covenant, it's clearly seen Christ is, is substantially different and better in every way. His sacrifice, the author says, was never intended to be repeated over and over again. In fact, it's actually nonsensical if you think about it, to think about the sacrifice of Christ being repeated over and over again. That's why he's, he goes on to say, otherwise, if that had been God's plan to repeat, repeatedly sacrifice Christ, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. This is intended to strike us as ridiculous, ludicrous. Christ would have had to suffer on the day that Adam and Eve sinned there in Genesis 3 and then been regularly sacrificed and raised to life over and over and over again throughout human history. Of course, if God had planned that, then that's what would have been happening this whole time. But Christ's sacrifice was so much greater than that that it was a one-time event. And that's what he gets to now, the positive description. Look back at verse 26 now. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, there's a memory verse for us. Every single word in that verse is of crucial importance. As we break it down, I think you'll see just how special and wonderful these truths are contained in such a short statement. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now this is obviously a reiteration of a wonderful truth that we've unpacked before. And so we, we won't go back through all of the things that we've said then, but we do have to look at each uh, word or each part of this phrase just to take in the richness of the depth of what he's just said. Everything about it is significant. First of all, notice the word once. Once obviously is a, a key word for our author because he's already highlighted that once for all back in uh, chapter nine, verses 11 and 12. There we said this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
Now you'll notice our verse today is really a, just a different way of summarizing the exact same thing that he said there in verses 11 and 12. But the, the key idea is the singularity of the sacrifice of Christ. It was once and never to be repeated. That again points to the fact that it's superior. But notice also the emphasis on the timing of when this happened. Look back in the middle of verse 26. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages. At the consummation of the ages, or we could say at the end of the ages. The word consummation really paints a brilliant image here of the importance of the timing of when Christ came. It's stated in such a way that we're to understand this is the climax of human history. The appearance of Jesus Christ was the high point of human history. Providentially, we even mark human history now by the coming of Christ. We have, we have BC and we have AD, much to the chagrin of the unbelieving world, but it is absolutely right because it was the climax of human history. And that's the idea here. It was the culmination. It was the, the end of human history, so to speak. He, he uses that terminology to say this was the key, the high point, the, the point in human history that all had been waiting for and looking for. God, through his prophets, gave signs and prophecies that his son would come. The Messiah is coming, starting all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And then we can follow it like a thread all the way to the coming of Christ as God keeps declaring he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And God's people are waiting and they're looking and they're praying and longing for the coming of Messiah. Millions of saints died never having realized the coming of Messiah. But at the appointed time, the consummation or the end of the ages, at the climax of history, at the appointed time providentially by God, Jesus Christ was manifest. At the perfect time. Notice this is the second usage of this idea of appearing or being manifested. He says it here, he has been manifested. And the way that that's stated is also significant. Grammar may not be your thing. It may not have been your subject in school. It really wasn't my subject in school either, but it plays great importance when it comes to studying the scripture. Here, this verb is in the perfect tense. That is, it's a past tense action that has ongoing ramifications for today on into the future. He has been manifested. One-time event, ongoing implications. But it's also in the passive voice, which means that this is an action that someone else did to this person. Someone else caused it to happen. He has been manifested. That is God the Father sent the Son. He sent his Son at exactly the right time and that coming changed human history forever. Jesus plainly says that he came because the father sent him in John 6, 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So the manifestation of Christ came at the divine plan of the father. But notice this, the next phrase and the significance of these words, why was he manifested? For, to what end? He's been manifested to put away sin. To put away sin. Now that's a very unique way of saying that. It means the complete removal. It, it could also be translated as an annulment. But the point is taking it completely away, not a covering for sin, not a, not a holdover for the year, to put it away, to be done with it once and for all. This is why he was manifest. This is incredible to think about. And the significance of his sacrifice can be seen in what it accomplished, but also in the substance of what the sacrifice contained. And this is the final phrase here in verse 26. Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
of himself. Again, a familiar friend, a familiar truth we've studied already, the the sufficiency and the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ is found in the fact that he offered his own righteous blood. His own life was the substitute for sinners. The substance of the sacrifice could not be more superior. Therefore, the effectiveness of the sacrifice could not be more superior. Christian, this is the sacrifice that covers your sins. Or to say it in the way the text says it, this is the sacrifice that put your sins away, completely away, gone forever. Let that wash over you as the tidal wave of God's goodness to you that it really is. If you've been a Christian for a hundred years here this morning, you should still be knocked over as you hear again that Christ has put away your sin and he's done it by the sacrifice of his own life. We are those who are privileged to know Christ, the Lord, the very Lamb of God who washed away our sins. This, Christian, is the greatest expression of God's goodness and kindness and love to you that you will ever experience. Whatever you have lost in this life, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the greatest thing, the thing that that supersedes any temporal gift, even the best temporal gifts are superseded by this gracious, good gift of God, his own son. Oh, how it should should affect our lives. It should stir our affections for Christ. It should foster humility in us as we think on what he's done for us. It should foster kindness that generates from our hearts as we think on the kindness of God to us. It should energize our mouths to speak of him. It should energize our feet to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received, as Paul says. What greater good, Christian, can God do to you than to give you the life of his own precious son to pay for your sins? And so it is that the Bible commands us to do things like pray with gratitude, rejoice always. How? How do we do those things? Why does the psalmist say that that, that when he thinks on God, it even lifts his countenance. Why? We see things like this in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Soak your prayers in the marinade of gratitude. How do you do that? How do you soak your prayers in the marinade of gratitude? How do you make sure that your mouth rejoices in the Lord always, even when your temporal circumstances from any human point of view are really not ideal to say the least? Christian, let me ask you, is your faith and your trust in God growing wobbly or tired or weak? And the author of Hebrews says, what you need is not something new. What you need is to turn your eyes again to who God is and what he's done for you. The ministry of a pastor actually is a ministry of remembrance. And I'm so thankful for that. My job is not to mesmerize you with new truths week in and week out. It is to remind us to hold the faith in the old truths that have been inspired on the pages of scripture, to remember together what God has done for us and to let that wash over us anew and affect us all the way down to the expression on our face and the words that we speak and the way that we pray. Everything about us is affected by these grand, wonderful truths. So Christ's superior sacrifice has secured his present ministry in heaven for us and it secured the putting away of our sin through his past ministry of substitution. But now we must look ahead to the future ministry of Christ towards us. And that brings us to proof number three, the purpose of his future return. 
the purpose of his future return. Here, we continue to have the same pattern of a negative example and then a, a positive example, but, but here it changes ever so slightly. In this first negative example, it's more of a, a negative result that comes at the end, followed by a positive result that comes in the second statement. But let's look together at verse 27 in this final proof. The author writes, and Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is the negative example. And this is a verse that we often use in isolation from its context. And, and it's, I would say it's not an abuse of this verse to use it that way. This is a truth that stands on its own. This is a truth that is true. Uh, it's, it's all throughout scripture. But what I want you to see this morning is that in context, this is actually not the key point that the author is making. This is a statement that the author makes to set up another true statement that's actually the point of his argument. But what is significant about this verse is the fact that he lists this as a common example of truth. He gives us verse 27 as if it's a truth statement that we should all just, duh, that's true. That's the idea. This is so true that he's able to say, if that's true, and of course we all know that it is, then this is true as well. And the fact that the author almost takes it for granted that this is true is instructive for us at how true it is. Because listen to what he just said. He said, it's appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. He says, this is an undeniable fact. This is a truth that's so true, you can basically take it to the bank. You can take it for granted. You can build another truth on top of it because it is so universally true. In fact, there are two truths listed here in this verse. One is universally true of all people. The second is universally true of all unbelievers. The first truth is simply this, every single one of us will die. It's appointed for men to die once. And that's universal to each man, woman, boy, girl, here in the world, all of us. There's no escaping the reality of death. There is no reincarnation. There is no second chance. We get one human life and the Lord dictates how long that life will be. But there's a second reality that is universally true of every person who dies apart from being washed in the blood of Christ. And after this comes judgment. This is here in context, this is the final judgment. This is judgment for sin. Divine judgment awaits every person who dies apart from Christ. It is as sure as death. Think about that. Nobody denies the fact that death is sure for all of us. We try to keep it at bay. We do all that we can to pretend as long as we live that it's not coming, but we all know it's coming. And what the author says, just as surely as you know in your heart of hearts that you will one day, day die, understand that if you die apart from Christ, you will just as surely be judged for your sin. This is a sober truth. Understand this, this verse, I hope you can see, leaves no wiggle room for believing that there's any way for a person to change their spiritual circumstance with God after death. There's no second opportunity in which you get there and say, okay, just kidding, now I see it's all real, uh, like a do-over, none of that. There's also no hint of anything that would resemble something like purgatory in which uh, you get there and, but there's some sins that, that haven't quite fully been covered by Christ and so you get the chance in purgatory to pay for those and then you get to go on into heaven. There's no mention of that. There's just death and judgment. This is the divine order that God has destined. And notice this is not a hypothetical truth. It's not a potential truth. He says, this is the blatant reality. But as sobering as that is, he uses that to springboard into something that is also true, that is gloriously better and more encouraging. The positive example here is this. 
so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Here's the author's basic argument in plain language. Here's the flow. Here's how he's connecting these two truths. Just as every human being dies once, Christ died once. And in that single instance of sacrificial death, he bore the sins of his people completely. And it will never be revisited. This is another way of again showing the superiority of the sacrifice of Christ in its singularity. It's a one-time event. Your death will be a one-time event. His death was a one-time event. And in that one-time death, he paid for sin. But that's not all. Because in the case of Christ, he reminds us he's coming again. There's a second time. And here again, we see our word appear. He's going to appear this time in the present tense. He will appear a second time. So if Christ died once like the rest of us, then what will be the nature of his second appearance? And this is the point he's making. Or in other words, if his death was sufficient to pay for sins the one time, then what's the point of him returning if he's not coming back to deal again with our sin? Well, he tells us. He's gonna return a second time. He will appear a second time, why? For salvation. And notice, for salvation without reference to sin. What is he saying? In one sense, we could say Christ came the first time for salvation. But in that sense, it was certainly in reference to sin. He came the first time for salvation by paying for our sins. But here, when he says he's going to come again, it's not going to be in reference to sin, but it's still going to be for salvation. What he's saying is the work has been accomplished. The blood was sufficient. It's fully covered your sins. There is no question about your inheritance or your salvation. But this is why the Bible speaks of our salvation in three different verb tenses. You ever notice this? Sometimes the Bible will say, you have been saved. That's a past tense, past perfect tense. You have been saved. It's already happened to you. But then sometimes the Bible will say, you are being saved or work out your salvation in the present tense. And then sometimes the Bible will say, you will be saved in the future tense. Well, which is it? Are we saved in the past tense and the present tense or in the future? And the answer is yes. And here's how that works theologically. The, the, the sacrificial death of Christ is eternally beneficial. It is sufficient. It is done. On the cross, he says, it is finished. So when you put your faith in Christ, it is done. You have been justified. You are saved. The righteousness of Christ is applied to your account and your sin is applied to him. Done in the eyes of God. And yet, if you're still living, which you are, then you know sin's still a big struggle, isn't it? It hasn't gone away. The penalty for sin has been paid and the power of sin has been dealt with in the sense that you have a new nature and you have the Holy Spirit to help you walk according to that new nature, but it's a daily struggle, is it not? That's the present tense salvation that we call sanctification. That is the ongoing battle with sin as the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk more and more faithfully after Christ. He conforms us daily to the image of Christ so that each day we look a little more like Christ than we did before. That's the idea. And over time, we grow and grow and grow in our maturity until finally one of two things happens. Either we die or Christ returns and he then completes our salvation in the sense that we are fully glorified. That is, all of those promises in that inheritance list that we looked at become ours fully when Christ returns for his people or when he brings us home to be with him. And so it is that when Christ returns, he returns not to deal with sin. That part's been done, but he returns to bring the fullness of our salvation that we might walk with him in newness of life and with complete, glorified, sinless, perfect bodies for eternity. No more sin. 
This is why he says in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we're children of God and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, that is when he returns, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That is when he appears, he will glorify us. He will make us to be like him in which we have no sin and we will see him in all his glory. So here in summary fashion, this is what the author has said here in this final proof. Christ's sacrifice is superior because in the same way that all men die only once, Christ died his sacrificial death only once. And all the promises that speak of his return don't undermine that because they're talking about the completion of the inheritance of salvation, not dealing with our sin. But there's one final phrase here before we close that we can't miss. Look at the very end of verse 28. There's one particular group of people who are waiting, it says, to those who eagerly await him. To these and only these will they receive the benefits of the return of Christ. To those who eagerly await him. Only those longing for the return of Christ will be covered with the complete salvation that he brings. Who are these people? Well, they are those who have come to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, the perfect son of God in human flesh. They are those who have seen the wickedness of their own sin and their rebellion and how it's caused a rift between them and God that they could never ever cross over, a rift that could only be solved by the blood of his son through repentance and faith. They are those who've been washed by the blood of Christ through repentance and faith. And the imagery here takes us yet again back to the day of atonement. The people of Israel would gather outside that tent, all of them looking on, straining their eyes to see the little dot of a man walking into the tabernacle, knowing that he was going into the Holy of Holies to represent them. And he was taking blood in there to offer to God and they were praying and praying that it would be accepted. And what were they waiting for? To see him come out. Because they knew if God didn't accept it, what was gonna happen? He wasn't coming out, right? He was gonna die right there in the Holy of Holies. And so think of the rejoicing that would have happened when he came back out of the tabernacle. It's done, it's been accepted. Our sins have been covered. In the same way, we as Christians know that our savior has gone to be at the right hand of the father. He's in the true holy place, the real holy of holies. And we know that our sins have certainly been paid for and they've been redeemed, but we're waiting for the completion of that salvation in which the fullness of that inheritance is ours, where we're done with sin in every way and we're longing for him to return when we will see him again. That's the imagery, we're waiting holding our breath in anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And mark it down this morning, whether you're a believer or a rebel against God, Christ will most surely come. He is coming again. Just as the angels declared on the day of his ascension in Acts, of his ascension in Acts 1, 11, they, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. And so we have before us two inevitable realities that should shake us into action. On the one hand, we have the reality that every single person in this room will die. And everyone not covered by the blood of Christ will then be judged for their sin and receive the just eternal punishment they deserve for that sin. On the other hand, we have the glorious truth that one day Christ will split heaven and he will return and bring full salvation, eternal salvation to his people. The question this morning that you have to answer is which group are you in? Which verse is true of you, verse 27 or verse 28? How will God find you when he comes? Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that there is no hope of being made right with God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you're not in Christ, you find yourself this morning in a desperate situation. Because as the scripture says, you will most certainly die. And what follows that death is not nirvana, it's not rest in peace, it's the judgment of a righteous holy God. But you find yourself this morning also incredibly blessed because just as grim as that idea is, it is overshadowed by the grace of a loving God who offers to you forgiveness and salvation in his son. The Bible says if you will humble yourself this morning, repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone, recognizing I can't do it. I can't make myself right with God. I need someone else to be my substitute. Recognizing that Jesus lived in your place, died as a sacrifice for your sins and rose again. The Bible says if you will believe in him, you will be saved. And you will join the rest of us who wait holding our breath in anticipation for the day in which he will split the clouds and come again for us. And he'll be bringing in his wake salvation, full, complete salvation. If you're a Christian this morning, as we bring this to a close, let me just remind us of three practical areas of our life in which we should be changed because of the truths we've seen this morning. And we're gonna base them around the three different aspects of Christ's ministry that we've seen. First of all, be encouraged by Christ's heavenly ministry. Be encouraged by his heavenly ministry. I want you to spend some time dwelling on the fact that even now Christ intercedes for you. He's not left you to figure it all out on your own and to wander through the trials and difficulties of life without hope. He is in the presence of the Father and he intercedes for your benefit that you might hold fast and he will hold you fast. Let that energize your faith and energize the way you walk with him. Secondly, be emboldened by Christ's perfect sacrifice. Be emboldened, first of all, to speak of these things. When you think on the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you, when's the last time that you told someone else about the gospel? When's the last time you had a gospel conversation with an unbeliever, sharing with them the richness of the sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for you, calling them to believe and repent? But be emboldened by his sacrifice, not only to share it, but, but to walk faithfully with him in the battle with sin. Don't believe the lie that you are a victim of your circumstances and that you have no control over your fleshly impulses. In Christ, you are not a victim, you are redeemed. You're not powerless over sin, you have a new nature and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Stand and fight tooth and nail for your sanctification. Be emboldened by the perfect sacrifice of Christ to get up and run, to say no to sin and yes to obedience and righteousness. And then thirdly, be eager for Christ's return. Let's just face it, life in this fallen temporal world is hard. How do we maintain a real sense of joy and hope in a world such as this one? A world in which the things we love most can be stripped away from us. We find joy and hope in the immovable fact that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will not leave things the way they are, Christian. It will not always be this way because he's coming again and he's coming again to make all things new. There's coming a day when we will be done with sin. Think on it. There's coming a day when even our deepest intentions of the heart will be pure and clean. There's coming a day when we will walk with one another in righteousness and behold the face of our Savior physically in all his glory. And so when you're downtrodden in this temporal fallen world, turn your eyes again to the heavens. And remember that though he is there at the right hand of the Father, he's coming again to bring us to be with him. May that encourage us to run the race more faithfully this week. Let's pray together. Lord God, we 
are so grateful to be your people, so grateful for these wonderful truths that remind us that there is a grace that's greater than all our sin and that when you wash our sins away, they are truly put away, never to rear their ugly head again in the sense that we are forgiven through and through. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We long to see you again, to see you face to face. Until then, hold us fast that we might honor and please you in every way. Encourage those who are beat down today. Edify your people, build us up that we might walk faithfully with you. And for those who may not be in Christ, open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the superiority of his sacrifice and bring them to yourself. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.